0: Hello and welcome to Life Learnings. I'm Barry Harker and my guest today is Louise Inglis. Louise is visiting Australia from Auckland, New Zealand. Louise is the author of Happiness in His Eyes, a story of love and disability. Happiness in His Eyes is Louise's story of the first seven years bringing up her son Kevin, a child with special needs. At 13 months, Kevin was diagnosed with autism And over the next five years, Louise and Michael and Matthew, Kevin's older brother, were forced to adjust to additional obstacles, including epilepsy, and a life radically different from that which they had ever imagined. Today I'll be talking with Louise about Kevin, who is now 11, and the impact of his life on those around him. Dashed hopes and dreams are balanced with moments of joy. Through it all, there is faith and hope. Welcome to Life Learnings, Louise, and welcome to Australia.
1: Thank you, Barry. It's lovely to be back in Australia, and thank you for inviting me here.
0: That's great to have you. Louise, I'd like to begin by reading a paragraph from page 163 of Happiness in His Eyes. Kevin is four years of age, and he's just had his tonsils removed. Kevin stayed home for the rest of the week. It was a difficult time alone with him. The mess in the house discouraged me. His crying discouraged me, my inability to complete tasks discouraged me, and my isolation discouraged me. I found myself wondering if indeed I was on planet Earth, or whether in fact I'd somehow gone to hell. This is one of the many personal low points you write about in your book, Louise. Tell me about some of the joys that Kevin has brought into your life and into the life of others.
1: There certainly are joys that Kevin has brought into our life and the lives of our family and extended family and others who care for him. You know, sometimes for no apparent reason Kevin just laughs and we don't really know why, but it's a delightful laugh and it just makes us all so happy. And Kevin is really happy with just simple pleasures, simple activities, taking him for a ride in the buggy. Giving him a drive in the car, I've got a big tandem bike, special bike, and he likes to ride on that. And these simple things just bring a smile to his face and and remind me of how lovely it is that he's really satisfied with these simple things in life. Kevin's got a real lack of inhibitions, and he just seems to have a way of making other people smile. He'll sit on their knee, he'll help themselves to their food, he'll join their group, and um, it's often been a conversation starter when Kevin just wanders up and uh, joins another group. Kevin likes to play on the piano. He can't really play the piano, but he has two notes that he likes to play repetitively and loudly, and my mum harmonises with him and they thoroughly enjoy it. So there are special moments despite his limitations. And I just love to see Kevin when we've been apart for a little while. He makes me feel like royalty. He smiles and he's happy and he claps his hand and he lets me give him a hug and he leads me by the hand to something he wants to show me. So there really are joys on this journey, even though there are lows.
0: Uh, Kevin is obviously nonverbal still.
1: Yeah, he's completely nonverbal. He's never said a word in his life.
0: So, how do you communicate with him?
1: Communication is an ongoing challenge. I think because Kevin's cognitive ability is so impaired, usually what he wants to communicate is fairly basic. And so, sometimes we know because he'll take us by the hand to the DVD player and hand us the remote. Or he'll lead us to the door and we know that he wants to go for a drive in the car. Um, It's more difficult at other times when he's in physical pain and we don't know why, we don't know what's causing it, you know, and there's a bit of trial and error and guesswork involved. We do use photographs. Photographs have a lot of photographs at home laminated in a folder and we try and use those when we're going to places or seeing people or, or want him to follow a routine and he understands the picture. He doesn't have the cognitive ability to understand or to do sign language but he does understand photographs of actual places and people, so that's a very important part of our so communication. You,
0: so you use the photographs like a communication board so that he's able to indicate his needs or his desires?
1: He doesn't initiate it so much. We're trying to get him to initiate, well, not even to initiate, but whenever we take him to the toilet, part of that routine is that we pick up a visual of of the toilet, and so we're trying to establish that we want him to show us the visual and we hope that one day he will learn to indicate his need. At school, he has photographs of what's in his lunch and he can choose the order and so we're trying to teach him that the photographs are his way to initiate communication but largely it's us that shows him what we're doing and we initiate the communication.
0: Let's go right back to the beginning Tell me about getting Kevin's diagnosis of autism.
1: It was 10 years ago, just a few days ago actually, and I remember it like it was yesterday. We knew that something wasn't quite right with Kevin, but we didn't know what. He was 13 months of age when we got the diagnosis of autism, but it had been a long process to get to that day. We'd had numerous... Tests and appointments with others before seeing this paediatrician. And my husband was at work. My mum came to support me. I remember we sat Kevin on the floor in the paediatrician's room. He couldn't sit unsupported. We had a big uh, cushion around him. And the paediatrician observed him, read through all the reports that I had, asked numerous questions, tried to interact with Kevin... And then he paused and he looked at me and he said, Louise, what do you know about autism? And I remember my mind just went into a blur and I really struggled to focus on his words. Kevin will probably never speak, he continued, and he has very low muscle tone and he may not walk. Instantly my dreams of family shattered into just tiny pieces all around me and I remember walking out of his room just feeling shocked and scared. My husband Michael and I are just ordinary parents and we were really thrown in the deep end when Kevin was diagnosed with severe autism. And as time passed Kevin has also been diagnosed with an intellectual disability and with refractory epilepsy, that's epilepsy that's not responding well to medication. And so it has been and continues to be a very difficult journey.
0: Since Happiness in His Eyes was published in 2012, what's been happening in Kevin's life?
1: The two most significant changes since the book was published are that we were invited to join a trial that the Ministry of Health in New Zealand were running. And it was a trial where they put intensive support into the homes of families with children with severe disabilities in an attempt to keep the children at at home. We were at the point when he was about seven that we were seriously looking into the option of residential care and there's very little in the way of residential care because that's not the approach that's generally taken now. But there were a few options and it was a very daunting Process, you know, to think of leaving your seven year old child full time in someone else's care. But I was seriously considering it because I was just struggling so much to cope. And so when we were offered this trial, after some deliberation, I decided to accept it. And it has been the best thing that we've done because now we have carers funded by the Ministry of Health to come into our home every day and help for a few hours each day. And that's made an enormous difference. Um, It's it's meant that I can resume work and have a little bit of regular time with my husband and eldest son and just continue with the day-to-day care of Kevin. We've had respite put in place so that Kevin goes to a family one night a week and that gives us a much-needed breather We have team meetings once a month with our carers and we've got a behaviour analyst on board. So we've got a much stronger support package around us now and that has helped significantly. The other thing that has really um, complicated the care of Kevin is that he's been diagnosed with epilepsy. Well, he was diagnosed with epilepsy before the book was published, but it's become so much worse And he's having a lot more seizures now and he's tried 11 different anti-epileptic drugs and so far none of them have given adequate control. And they tend to come in clusters. We'll have a few weeks that are just horrendously stressful and then they seem to lull again. The type of epilepsy he's he's got is called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And so it is typical of Lennox-Gastaut syndrome that seizures will come and go. So that has really added to the stress. You know at times when he's having clusters of seizures I just feel as if I'm living on the edge. I'm just continually listening out for him and at the slightest sound of a crash I run and check that he hasn't fallen over and isn't having a seizure or as soon as the silence I go and check on him and it's a very draining time and all-consuming when he's having seizures. However, right now, he's in a very good space, and we've had about 10 or 11 days without a seizure, and feel myself calming and rejuvenating.
0: Tell me about a seizure. What is it like? What's, what's the experience like for Kevin? What's it like for you?
1: I think the first seizure was the most frightening for me, because I didn't really know what it was, and I didn't really know what to do he let out a a loud wail and apparently that kind of noise happens as the muscles around the neck just seize and around the torso and um, force the air out and his whole body was shaking and he wasn't breathing and at first I thought perhaps he was choking on something because he had been eating and I tried to um, dislodge whatever it was that I thought was was stuck and, and nothing really helped and um, I tried CPR and finally I thought, oh, this is probably a seizure. Uh, I feel a bit <laughs> slow admitting that. But when you've never seen one and it's not, you don't think about it, it comes as an awful shock. Mm. Um, and his seizures vary. That's also part of Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, that there are a variety of types of seizures. Um, some of them involve the whole body shaking some of them he he just drops to the ground and he can recover quickly Um, so there are a variety of seizure types and we're much more um, confident in dealing with them now but it still never feels right to see your child have a seizure
0: can you predict when he's going to have a seizure not at all
1: there's never a warning and if he gets any a sensation that a seizure may be coming, we don't know. He certainly hasn't been able to indicate that. There's no sign that he knows one's coming. We know that he's more likely to have a seizure when he's tired, and so it's important that we get him to bed on time and hope that he'll sleep when he's put to bed. We know that when he's sick, he's more likely to have a seizure. If he has a tummy bug and he's not keeping food or medications down, then he's far more likely to have a seizure um, missing medication those sort of things will trigger seizures if he's overheated um, but other than that we really don't know at all.
0: Matthew this is Kevin's older brother in the book he's a bit of a hero really because he's always there helping you particularly through the seizures and knowing exactly what to do to ring the ambulance and to uh, direct the ambulance and uh, just seems to act like in concert with you
1: yes matthew's been very good he's really been mature beyond his years i think um in dealing with these and and seeing these you know it's quite traumatic to see a loved one having a seizure and it's become just almost the norm Mm. for
0: matthew Mm. tell me what kevin likes to do
1: Kevin likes to watch DVDs and he particularly likes to watch DVDs of himself and we have lots and lots of family DVDs. I take a lot of video and Kevin watches it and sometimes he'll pass me the remote control if there's too much of his brother being shown. He likes to see himself. And these videos are replayed repeatedly and I think they're very good. I think they tend to remind us of the good times because we tend to only video the good times. Kevin also responds well to music and he likes to thump on the piano. He has a ukulele. Well, actually, he's on his third ukulele because he treats things roughly and he has a guitar and he plucks the strings. He doesn't really make any sounds that are particularly musical, but he still likes music and he likes to listen to music. If I put CDs on in the car, he's always happy. Quite likes to hear if I'm playing. My Does flute. he
0: vocalise at all? Is there any he can make
1: noises, but he doesn't ever try to sing, for example.
0: Mm. Does he tap his toes and clap? He or?
1: claps and he stands on his tippy toes, which is very um, typical of children with autism. And so you can sort of imagine he's almost dancing. Um, he He really enjoys the children's programme at church lots of music and singing and actions there and he enjoys that and he goes into a program with preschoolers which he's been going to for many years and developmentally that's just where he likes to go and that's where he's best suited and the the teachers there are just lovely and do their utmost to accommodate him and the children are all quite familiar with him in his unique ways. He likes to go for drives in the car. We can take him for a long drive and he'll be usually quite content and calm and happy. He enjoys warm water, although we have realised we have to be careful with that because it can trigger seizures. He likes to sit in a spa pool. He likes to eat and actually this is a real blessing because so often individuals with autism have quite particular uh, taste preferences. But Kevin's the opposite, really. He's under-sensitive, and he'll eat strong flavours and curries and mushrooms and all sorts of things that a lot of children wouldn't eat, and he'll eat copious quantities, and uh, yeah, that's that's great. And he likes to be where there's a group of people. He's, he quite likes the buzz of a crowd or a party or something going on. He likes to go to shopping malls or... Um, a program called Star Jam, where there's lots of other individuals listening to music and they've mostly got disabilities. Some people
0: with autism would find that really challenging absolutely. because of the amount of stimulation yes. in their environment. Yes,
1: so he's, he's so quite that, unlike. That's a blessing that yes. he's
0: able to handle those sorts of environments yes, well. It
1: is, it really is. Um, he can be tired afterwards, but really enjoy it at the time.
0: Tell me about a typical day for Karen.
1: Days are very routined and structured. Kevin functions far more effectively with a familiar routine. And so every morning starts the same. he doesn't
0: like to get out of that routine, I'm sure.
1: He gets quite distressed when the routine is changed. And I think that's partly because the communication is difficult. You know, I I will try and show him photos of, of what we're doing, particularly when there's a change of routine, but it can still throw him and he won't want to get out of the car and he'll be crying and distressed. So he is definitely better when there's a familiar routine. Mm -hmm. So 7 o'clock every morning I go into his room and give him his medications, give him a big drink of water. Getting enough water into him is an important part of his care. He's on so many medications that constipation's an ongoing problem, so um, we really have to push the water. And we do a toilet routine. You know, at 11 we're still working so hard on toileting and... Mm -hmm. I hope one day he may be independent with that. There's no guarantees, but we are working towards that. We have breakfast and try and help him to practice using a spoon. Um, Back to the toilet again. He has his just regular morning routine, same, same, same every day. And because Kevin goes to a school with children with severe disabilities... Um, He New Zealand funds a a taxi for children, so he's picked up and taken to school in a van with a bunch of other children with disabilities. I think it's quite an interesting ride for the taxi driver sometimes. Um, And school is very much routine-based as well, very... um, Basic life routines, once again, emphasis on the toilet and the feeding and some exercise and trying to um, help focus and concentration with puzzles and books. And it's actually really important to try and develop a variety of activities that Kevin enjoys because he is going to have a lot of leisure time in his mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm and sensory activities are important for these children too. And then after school, when he returns, there's an after-school after, after school routine, and he'll go through the usual toilet, afternoon tea. We try and take him for a walk each day. It's a fairly slow walk, and it's the same route, and he protests sometimes. He's not as active as I'd like him to be, but it's really important that we do the exercise. Um, We have some stairs that my dad made, especially for Kevin to practice climbing up and down because he struggles with those. And then he'll do some little fine motor activities, puzzles and picking up small things. And toilet, shower, dinner bed basically. So it's pretty much the same each day. But then within the week there's a little variation. Once a week he goes to stay with a respite family And my parents are very supportive and they try and have him once a week when they can. And then on the weekends, he'll come to church and we have a variety of activities, take him out to different programs or family activities or community activities.
0: This all means that you're in a routine too, aren't you?
1: Yeah, it's very hard Mm -hmm. to be spontaneous. (laughs) It's just about impossible. And life has to be planned well in advance so i actually spend a lot of my time doing administrative organizational tasks to keep things ticking along smoothly
0: so it's almost like a full-time role just keeping up with kevin and then just doing your work and we'll talk about your mm. uh, your employment later and your careers yeah, two could of vary. which you actually lost because of Kevin, and we'll talk about those a little sure. later. Tell me what it was like for you in your life prior to Kevin, and how has Kevin changed your life?
1: Prior to Kevin, we had Matthew, and when Matthew was about two, my husband and I decided we'd really like to have another child. But at that point, I think our life was as normal as it could be for most families with a toddler, and we enjoyed getting outdoors. Michael and I have always enjoyed outdoor activities, and we'd do little walks with Matthew, and we did some camping, and we did the odd little bit of hiking. And then when Kevin came, things changed, You know, I mean, I had dreams before Kevin was born, as I think all parents do, that this child would join our family and we would continue with hiking and camping holidays or um, tramping rather than hiking, as we call it in New Zealand. And I imagined that Kevin would learn a musical instrument and maybe as a family would play music together sometimes. I just assumed that we'd go to church together and... Kevin and Matthew would go to the same school. I figured he'd probably play a sport, perhaps the same as Matthew, perhaps not, just the usual kind of expectations that you have when a second child is about to come. There's a poem that is very well known amongst the circles of um, people who are working with disabilities about someone who thought they were going on a journey to Paris and they ended up in Holland and there are still beauties there. It's just not what was expected and that's really how it has been with Kevin. Our home has become a much busier place than it was before Kevin was there. We have carers come into our home. We've had a lot of support agency, numerous appointments. Our life is very much more home-based. It's harder to get away. We have attempted a couple of camping trips with Kevin and I think camping trips test most families and they tested ours to the inth. <laughs> It's It was just so hard because we couldn't confine Kevin to any place in the tent and he would scatter things and make a mess and he was dangerous around gas cookers and long drop toilets are really hard with it child who's not toilet trained. And crying at night for hours was stressful because we were concerned about other campers. So camping's not something we attempt together And anymore. Yeah, that's something
0: that your family really enjoys. Isn't
1: yes, it? it's a very special part to me. That's felt like a massive loss of dreams. Hmm. You know, I used to always be planning camps six months in advance. And as soon as the camping um, options were open, I'd be booking in. So that has definitely been a loss and physically Kevin's not capable of walking very much. I was actually excited last year because I could see his walking improving and I took him out one afternoon with friends for a simple bushwalk. It took us about an hour and we did it slowly and he actually managed really well and I thought, oh, we might be able to do this more. Then he had such a long seizure afterwards and I think I'd just tired him out too much and so... I haven't actually attempted it since, mm. and and you know there's no way that Kevin could have gone to the same school as Matthew, and that was a real, a real challenge for me to accept that he needed to be in a school with other children with severe disabilities. I found that. So
0: this is this is an unfolding thing, isn't it? Absolutely. As, as each year is bringing you mm. a new phase of Kevin's life, but also a new phase to your life and your yes. family's life.
1: Yeah. Your so it's like it's, it's
0: an unfolding thing.
1: Very much so. Yeah, it's very much unfolding. Years ago, before I married, while I was actually doing some physiotherapy training, I briefly thought that. One day I might like to work in a school with special needs children and I was really just thinking of my interest of tramping and camping and I thought I'd get all the school holidays and we could have all these great trips and um, I have school holidays with our children so I went and I spent a day at Somerville Special School in Auckland and by the end of the day or in fact well before the end of the day I thought no this is not for me, I don't, it's not my area I, I don't feel comfortable I don't know how to communicate with the children and I don't know how to respond to them and I just feel really awkward and I quickly left and I thought I'll never go back and years later when Kevin was about three and I was at an appointment with the pediatrician I said to him I said so where do you think Kevin will be best going to school and he said I think some of all special school would be best for Kevin and I remember feeling like a brick had been dropped on me and I thought, wow, Kevin's needs really as severe as the needs of those children mm. that I observed that day. And I found that very difficult to come to terms with. But, you know, it was only a year after Kevin had been at school that I was so grateful that that's where he was. The teachers gave of their, their love, their care, their skill, Kevin had a program ideally suited to his needs. I learned to respond to the children appropriately and to feel comfortable talking with them and holding their hands and just being with them. And it was a growth journey for me and I I am grateful that we have that school. I'm very grateful, actually, that we have a school that caters specifically to the needs of children with severe disabilities.
0: And your church has obviously been very accommodating too.
1: Church has been great. You know, I mean, sitting through a church service is not feasible for Kevin, but the children's programme is great and they have catered to him and they've also, early on, before we had funding for carers, they organised for some of the teens to help look after Kevin so I could sit in church. And that was so thoughtful. And various ones have. They've looked out for us. They've um, been very supportive so that church can still be a meaningful experience for me. And I I feel so grateful for that because I know a lot of families who have children with disabilities, they just stop going to church. It becomes too hard. Mm. They're fully focused on caring for the child, that they can't absorb anything for themselves, can't be involved, can't contribute. It's just really not... Benefiting anybody. So I'm very grateful for our church.
0: A child with a disability always makes a huge difference to family life. Tell me about the changes that uh, Kevin's occasioned in your own family.
1: Our family tends to function now as a split family. My husband tends to do things with our oldest son and I tend to do things with Kevin, and that just seems to work best for us. I still make a real effort to have time just with Matthew. I really enjoy taking him to his music lesson and and listening to him playing, and I like taking him to the pool sometimes, and about once a year I'll try and organise a camping trip with him and some friends, but most of the time we do things separately because that just seems to be what works, and it's not ideal, but You've got to be pragmatic. Um, And and the gap between Matthew and Kevin is increasing. Kevin's like a preschooler and Matthew's a teenager. And Mm. so there's not a lot that they can do together.
0: And when we're looking at dashed hopes and dreams, really Matthew's also been um, a loser in a sense Mm. from this because he hasn't had the brother that he wanted to grow up with. And as you say, the gap's getting wider.
1: Mm.
0: How does he relate to him now?
1: You know, Matthew tried for many years to really connect with Kevin. We've got lovely little video snippets and photos of Matthew showing how to use toys. And he put in an effort, but it was never reciprocated. Kevin Mm. wasn't able to respond. And so gradually and understandably, Matthew's just followed his own interests and developed his own friends. And so while we all live together as harmoniously as we can... There's certainly not the closeness there that it would be if Kevin was developing, mm, typically. Mm.
0: Now, what changes in your own attitudes has Kevin brought into your life?
1: Well, Kevin has opened my eyes and my mind to the whole world of disability. I'd really had just about nothing to do with disability. And so I've become so much more compassionate to those in similar situations and just so much more aware of the challenges faced and very much more patient. You know, when I see people out having an outing and I I have a person with a disability, I'm just aware of the challenges they face and much more willing to offer a hand or to um, just stand back and let them do what they need to do. So I think it's just mostly that awareness and acceptance that has changed.
0: Mm. Now, there were some very uh, grave changes to your professional life. You trained as a teacher, and I think you taught biology.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Secondary level. Then you went on to do physiotherapy, and you practiced as a physiotherapist. When Kevin came along, you basically felt it was impossible to sustain... Your work as a physiotherapist, what happened then?
1: I think that if I had done physiotherapy earlier in my life and I had worked as a physiotherapist longer, I would have had the necessary work experience to work part time and I could have carried it on. But because I had retrained as an adult and I'd only had A couple of years' work experience as a physiotherapist when Matthew was born and then only very part-time until Kevin was born. I was still kind of working around the various rotations and I had a lot of ongoing professional development to do and journals to read and courses to attend. And I remember sitting at my desk one day with piles of reading and on one side there were the physio journals and on the other side there were autism things to read. And I thought, I can't do it all. It's got to be one or the other, and it was not only the work requirements. I just couldn't f- f- source funding for the appropriate care for Kevin at at preschool places. He needed one-on-one care, so I laboured over this decision because you know I'd worked hard for another four years to get the degree. I had assumed that that would be what I would be doing for the rest of my working life. And in the end, I decided to stop. And it was a very difficult decision. But interestingly, after I resigned, within a couple of weeks of having posted my resignation letter, I received a call just out of the blue from a school asking if I would come and teach the flute just for one hour to two students. And I've always had music as an interest and played the flute. And I thought, huh. That'd be nice, I could do that. And I just felt that as one door closed, God opened another door. And slowly over the years, as time has allowed, I've increased my flute teaching and I've now got three full days and about 20 hours teaching and I really enjoy it and I just feel so grateful to have finally found my niche.
0: But there's a financial cost, isn't there, from... Having Kevin in the family, it's uh, prevented you from pursuing Mm. your career as a physiotherapist. Yes. And um, for a long period there, you're obviously just simply living on part time income. Very much so. For you, at least. Yes. And uh, so there is a financial penalty to the entire family as a consequence.
1: There definitely is. There definitely is. In fact, my husband and I were discussing this just the other day. And saying that, you know, ideally at this stage in our lives I'd be working full-time and would be saving more effectively for retirement, but it's not feasible. I'm stretched to the limit with the days that I am doing, and so we recognise that and do the best we can, although we are certainly grateful for the support we're getting from the government as far as care is being funded.
0: I'm Barry Harker, and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. My guest today is Louise Inglis. We've been discussing Kevin, Louise's son, who is now 11, and the impact of Kevin's autism on his life and the lives of those closest to him. When we come back after the break, we'll be continuing our conversation around the impact of Kevin on the life of his family.
2: If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on O2. 4973-3456 Or from outside of Australia on country code 612 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3abn That is radio at the number 3ABN Australia All one word.org.au Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. God is the God of the impossible. Gideon was chosen by God to be the deliverer of Israel and he was tasked with leading the armies of Israel against the Midianites. In order to even have a chance, Gideon would have had to have had a huge army. But we read this in Judges 7 and verse 7. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Three hundred men against a massive well-armed fighting force? Utterly impossible, except that God was with them. The same God who brought down the walls of Jericho and opened up the Red Sea would do the impossible again, which means that God can do the impossible for you. Maybe you're married to someone who doesn't believe, and you've come to the place where you realize it's just impossible for you to get through to that person about the love and goodness of God. You might be right, but remember that what's impossible for you is not impossible for God. An important test or exam Try as you might, you can't get it figured out. But God can help you with this or anything else. In the beginning, God called the world out of nothing. Now, do you know anyone else who could do that? No, you don't. But God is the God of the impossible. A challenge at work, financial difficulties. God is able, always able. Of course, He doesn't always act in the way we think He should, but that's only because He knows best. So hang on to God. Faith won't let God go. If a situation looks impossible, that's when God can really step in and let you see how great He is. Against the odds, Gideon led Israel to an amazing victory through God's power. And God can do the same for you. Hold on to God today. God is the God of the impossible.
0: If you've just joined us, I'm Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. My guest today is Louise Inglis, author of Happiness in His Eyes A Story of Love and Disability. Louise is from Auckland, New Zealand, visiting Australia. In this part of the program, I'll be talking with Louise about the ongoing impact of Kevin on the life of his family. Louise, tell me about the impact of Kevin on your faith.
1: Mostly, I have maintained a strong faith in God throughout this journey. I've been very fortunate to grow up in a Christian family. I've had a Christian education. I've had a very supportive church. Over the years, I've developed my own relationship with Jesus, and all of this has been foundational to support me through this journey Recently, however, I have really struggled at times with my faith and I thought I might just share with you from a journal entry that I wrote just a couple of weeks ago. I lifted myself up out of the covers enough to see the red illumined numbers on the clock beside Michael. 4.13am. Breathe deeply. Rest, I told myself. Images of Kevin's seizures filled my mind. Where are you, God? What good can come from the suffering of this dear little boy? What are you doing to help? I'm feeling angry with you. For the first time in all these years, I'm beginning to feel like turning my back on you. What have you done to help? Thoughts tumbled around in my mind. Be still and know that I am God, came the reply. I helped you get an exemption so Esther Shan can drive Kevin to school twice a week, even though she's not fully licensed yet. I've given you friends who care and call and encourage you and give of their time. I've given you the wraparound services from CCS Disability Action. Your carers are funded. I've given you a taxi driver who loves Kevin like he's his own son. He's a father. He feels the ache too. I've given Kevin a beautiful teacher. She is very caring. She goes the extra mile. She protects Kevin from injury, often giving him one-on-one supervision. I've kept your parents in good health. They love you and Kevin dearly. They do all they can to support your family. I've given you over and over again the assurance of a better life for Kevin one day. Then, this will seem like a short time. Kevin will have abundant health, he will talk with you, he will climb trees, he will run, he will kick a ball, he will not have seizures any more. there will be no more tears. I felt my body and mind relaxing. Humbled and feeling embraced by God's love, I fell into a peaceful sleep. And I'm very thankful that God is big enough to deal with my questions and my doubts. And I can confidently affirm my faith in God.
0: Mm. Something like this um, is really challenging to faith, isn't it? Because Mm. you really don't have the answers as Mm. to why this is happening to you, why it's happened to Kevin, why it's happening to your family. And yet uh, that's the reality that you have to live with. Yes. So does this happen frequently? Is this... Is this um, something where you question God frequently or is it just occasionally when things just get so pressured?
1: It's very infrequently. I must say throughout this journey I've really had a strong faith in God and I think it's really only been recently. This year has been the most difficult year with Kevin. He's had more seizures than ever before. They've been close together. They've been severe. It's been very testing, and I think that was really what triggered, you know, my doubts. Um, and as I just shared, you know, I felt really humbled as I was reminded of all that God has done. And although the, the epilepsy doesn't um, stop, his provision continues.
0: I was just saying to my wife recently that um, when we think about the things that are happening to us we think that nothing worse could happen. And then you see the life of someone else and what they're having to deal with. And so you realize then that things could be worse and that other people are dealing with things that are worse than you. Mm. And it helps you to realize that Mm. we're all in the same boat together, aren't Mm. we? We need to support each other. Mm. And that the way to deal with this sort of questioning is to remember what God Mm. has done for you in your life Mm. and reflect on all those wonderful things that happen as well. And in your in your diary entry here you've actually mentioned um, the things that you can feel blessed for in relationship mm, to, to Kevin's right. support I'd like to talk about Matthew briefly. he writes a brief piece in the book it's very poignant with a palpable sense of loss. it must have been really tough for Matthew growing up and feeling that his brother is never really connected with him. Is just getting further and further away from him. What's Matthew's relationship with Kevin today?
1: Well, although chronologically there's only three years difference between Matthew and Kevin, developmentally it's more like 10, 12 years. And there's very few things that they can actually do together. And so the relationship is understandably limited you know, Matthew was really looking forward to having a little brother, and I think that it's it has been a big disappointment for him. You know, occasionally as a family, we'll do things together. We might cycle together. We've got a little motorboat, and Kevin likes to have rides and that with us. Mostly, though, Matthew is just moving on with his life ...and his friendships and his activities and interests.
0: Tell me about Matthew's life.
1: Well, I think Matthew's growing into a fine young man... ...and I'm really proud of him. He's 14 years old now... ...and he attends our local Elam Christian College in Auckland... ...and he's got lovely friends. He's very keen on cricket, plays rep-level cricket... ...and he's learning classical guitar... ...and that's really beautiful to listen to... And he's very tech-savvy and particularly interested in 3D modelling and animations. So he's a bright, capable, quiet, reserved and confident boy. Confident in himself in his own quiet way.
0: Now we talked about Matthew's relationship with um, Kevin before. How much contact is Matthew having with Kevin now?
1: Well, we eat meals together and... We just hang out together at home, but it's not close contact. It's not like contact where brothers go off and play together and ride bikes together and bat and ball together. There's nothing like that.
0: Mm. So how does how does Matthew relate to Kevin now? Is he is he interested in just uh, ignoring him? What what, what impact yeah. is it having on his social life?
1: Well, fortunately. Matthew is still comfortable bringing his friends to our home, Mm -hmm. and I'm really grateful for that. I know there was a time when it was hard for Matthew um, because he felt awkward with Kevin around. And I think, you know, Matthew's friends have been in our home so much over the years that they... They know Kevin's ways and his noises and his habits and they just accept him and go and get on with whatever they're doing. So I'm really very relieved that Matthew's friends will still come and enjoy being in our home even though they're not actually able to do things together.
0: Kevin's story is an ongoing journey for you. Tell me about the things that have brought you the greatest solace in your life.
1: About once a year I organise a trip with friends to go into the bush and I really enjoy those times that was a big part of my life before Kevin was born and it's still something that I really enjoy getting out there with like-minded friends I just love to have time in nature I love the physical challenge of it I love the social times and so that is a very important thing to me that I still try and do And my connection with God continues to offer a real solace. And I'm particularly encouraged by meditating on a couple of verses. I find Isaiah 41.10 comes back to me over and over. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I often find myself saying parts of that verse and thinking on it and meditating on it. And I also am very comforted by another verse in Isaiah. Isaiah 40 verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And I've often thought of that last part. And although Kevin's not particularly young anymore, he's like a young one and I feel as if God gently leads me through all the times with him. My parents have been and continue to be a huge support and I'm so touched by their love for our whole family. You know, it's been very difficult for them too and they're like a rock in our lives. Music is also very comforting for me and I listen to music a lot and it can be whatever I need it to be it can be uplifting or it can be calming and sometimes I play music and I'm very grateful for music
0: now I want to talk with you about um, the drudge and the tiredness over the last few years they seem to have been your constant companions however did you get to write a book such a beautiful book as happiness in his eyes
1: You know, when Kevin was first diagnosed with autism, I felt completely out of my depth. Autism was totally new to me. I felt nervous. I had numerous questions. How are we going to cope with this? What treatment options should we pursue? How are we going to afford it? What about Matthew? What impact would it have on him? What about our marriage, my career? It just felt too big, too much, too hard. And at those times, I began to journal And I just found the process of writing was very helpful for clearing my mind and that I could think more clearly after I'd been writing. And it allowed me to then focus on what I needed to do rather than just repeatedly circling these worries around in my mind. And by the time Kevin started school, I had a couple of ring binders just full of notes that I'd written. And every now and then I would share a snippet with a friend. And a couple of friends started saying to me, you know, you should write a book. I'd never intended to write a book. It was never my plan. But as they started saying that, I thought, maybe. I liked reading, and I'd looked for books to read and was surprised at how little was in the market in New Zealand. Um on families' Tunies with severe disability. I found one book that had been written retrospectively by the parents of a child with autism, and they wrote it in their retirement, and the book itself was published, I think, around 1970. So it was dated, and educational and medical systems had changed so much and I had lots of books that were American and they were you know the the human aspect was very helpful but their systems were so different I found a couple from Australia but I thought there's actually not much here I I think there is potential for a book and yes finding the time and the energy was definitely the hardest when Kevin started school I had a bit more time I was teaching about one day a week at that time so I had opportunities and whenever Kevin went to respite at that point, that was for two nights a month, I put aside one hour each time he went to respite and it wasn't much but I guarded that time and I looked forward to it and I'd lock myself in my office and write and over the months I began to realise I needed more time and I had a couple of weekends away where Michael looked after the children. And when I arrived at the destination, I just wrote feverishly. I stayed up late. I hardly even unpacked my gear, just really grabbed the time. And I stayed up late. I got up early. Um, Lots of things weren't done around the house. And finally, the book was finished.
0: I think it's a great book and i think it's a wonderful addition to uh, the whole literature of disability not only in new zealand but also internationally i think it's uh, a wonderful portrait of what a, a disabled person in a family can um, can impact a family with thank I'd you i'd like to just ask you uh, how people can obtain a copy of the book and we're actually running out of time. You know, we had planned to um, talk about a whole lot more. So I think, Louise, we're going to have to go to a second interview. Sure. And so um, I'd like you to just tell us how people can uh, obtain a copy of Happiness in His Eyes.
1: The easiest way to access Happiness in His Eyes is as an ebook through Amazon. Unfortunately, though, the ebook doesn't have photos, and I think the photos really helped to tell the story. And we're going to story. talk about
0: those photos later, aren't sure. we? Sure.
1: For those living in New Zealand, the larger Whitcall stores all have copies of it. Some of the Paper Plus stores, our local Elam Christian bookstore has it. When the book was first published, I devoted quite a lot of time to getting it into bookshops, to doing some talks. Now I'm teaching three days a week and I just don't do any of that and it may be easier for people to simply contact me directly and they're welcome to email me if they can't find a a copy easily. My email address is louise at com, and I can post it directly. For those in Australia... Would you like to
0: just spell that out, your email address?
1: So louise, L-O-U-I-S-E, at... Louise Inglis, l o u i s e, i n g l i s dot com. And if you forget that, and you're in Australia, you'll be well acquainted with Koorong Books. They have stocked it in the past. They don't have any at the moment, but they are happy to direct people to me. So, if you contact them, they will uh, give you my email address.
0: And I think the Adventist the Book Centre might have some Book as well. Book Centre
1: have some as well.
0: Okay. This just reminds me that writing a book is only half the task, isn't it? The other half Indeed. is promoting it and getting it getting it into bookshops and being sold. Louise, I think we might just hold over the um, the remainder of our conversation till the next time. but I'm just wondering whether you would like to close our conversation now with prayer.
1: Sure, yeah, I'd be delighted to do that. Let's um bow our heads wherever we are. Our loving Father God. We thank you that you just long for us to come to you, just as a parent longs for their child to come and to just be together and be in each other's presence and enjoy each other. We thank you that you really understand the heartache felt by so many parents as they receive the diagnosis of a disability or severe illness, injury, You understand because you are a father and these are your children too. So we thank you, Father. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your understanding and we thank you for your provision. In Jesus' name,
2: amen.
0: Thank you, Louise. I'm Barry Harker and my guest today on Life Learnings has been Louise English from Auckland, New Zealand. Louise is the author of Happiness in His Eyes, a story of love and disability. And I'm going to be continuing this uh, conversation with Louise in a second interview, uh, which you will be able to hear next week. Until then, bye for now, and God bless you and keep you.
2: You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.